This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. A few weeks ago, the New York Times on a Sunday did a front page above the fold series of articles. Well, it began with one article and then it turned into a series of articles on the failures of yeshiva education in New York and how essentially uh, that New York State has abdicated its role in teaching all sorts of children. And when it came time to try and do something about this, a lot of the people responsible for trying to make improvements to the situation were nowhere to be found. There was a stark pushback to this article from some in the Orthodox Jewish community and the Hasidic Jewish community, and this has been debated. Uh, We've talked a little bit about this on this program, and the issue of yeshiva education and the, what some would say, lack of education that's going on in yeshivas is not a new one. But uh, it is interesting that it's now getting so much attention. Whenever the New York Times pays attention to something, that tends to be the reaction. The interesting thing about this article was that it was printed both in English and in Yiddish. So uh, it was clearly designed to try and reach some of the people in the community that, uh, that the article was written about. What I had hoped to do is have a... Honest discussion about this issue and something of a debate between people that sided with the New York Times version of what was happening and people that were on the other side. I did hear back from a number of folks that were willing to uh, take the, uh, for lack of a better description, the pro-Yeshiva side of the debate. I heard from uh, Larry Gordon the editor of the uh, the editor of a, a ter- t- newspaper out in Long Island, uh, the Five Town Jewish Times. I heard from a, a radio talk show host by the name of Elliot Resnick, but neither of them were able to come in studio. So I thought what we would do is turn to somebody that uh, we haven't seen in a while, but who has been very outspoken on this issue. She is an attorney, and uh, she was the publisher of the Lost Messiah blog. Very. Proud to welcome back Julie Globus. And my thinking was we could take some calls as long as people are polite. Last time Julie was here, we had one person call her Hitler. No need for that. Uh, And uh, then what we can do in another week or two is have one of these other folks that has a different view come in and have their voice heard. And then maybe in another few weeks, we can have Julie and somebody else in studio together when uh, when everybody's schedules work. Uh, Let me welcome back Julie Globus. Hello, Julie. Hi, thanks for welcoming me back. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been almost two years, and uh, I guess maybe I didn't have a full appreciation for the last time that you walked in here. It really did look sort of like a different radio station, right? Yes. I felt like I needed a hard hat to walk in here. <laughs> we were just, uh, I think, uh, you, one of our, you were one of our first guests when we had moved in, and uh, certainly it was, uh, we had a very rustic look uh, back then, and uh, now everything is uh, is is up to, up to snuff, I'd say, right? High tech, very high tech. All right. Uh, the big question on everybody mind is you are now sitting on a chair braced by that pillow that I was talking about last hour. What do you think? How is the pillow? Uh, 
It's a pillow. I, I haven't I haven't figured it out yet. Okay. Well, it so is. it's not necessarily you're not wowed by it. Um like. no, it's actually not that I'm wowed by it. It's that I am injured from a a race I did recently, so I'm not wowed by sitting at all. So Yeah, so you were telling me uh during the top of the hour news, you did since last I saw you, you've done 3 races. So I think since the last time I saw you, I've done more than that. But this summer, I did three 70.3 half Ironman races. 70.3 half Ironman? Yes. So that's where you swim, you bike, and then you run? So it's a 1.2-mile swim. It's a 56-mile bike, and then it's a half marathon at the end. You know, I am now forced to agree with all the people that are about to call me and say that you're crazy. <laughs> well, <laughs> um. On 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 Halloween Eve, there is a race that I want to sign up for. It's been a bucket list race. It's 444 miles and 44 hours on a bicycle. Wow. On the Natchez Trace Parkway. And that's been my bucket list for years. It's, um, it's a straight bike race. Um, you just have to finish in 44 hours. And it requires sort of a lot of logistics. So I've been sort of planning it for a couple of years. But it is hard to get into because it's a very limited field and it's a sort of a joke they do it at midnight on halloween central time so i've already done the pre-registration for it and are you still planning to participate even though you're injured uh yeah i mean it's a year away and i'm already signed up for to redo okay, that it's next halloween yeah. okay I'm, I'm already signed up to redo the main race which i didn't finish because i got injured and i'm signed up for a Western Pennsylvania race already, a 70.3 for next year. Well, And so the the injury is not doing anything to uh, get you to slow down? No. No. God bless you. That's wonderful. Uh, Let that be a warning for you. (laughs) Exercise at your own peril, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Matt Blaze and I, you don't see us dealing with any injuries. I'll just say that. Um, Now, Julie, uh, just so for folks that haven't heard our previous conversations, uh, tell folks a little bit about your background. Uh, You're Jewish, right? Right. You grew up. So, yes, I am Jewish. I grew up in a household where my parents were first generation. Um, My uncle and my grandfather were Yiddish speakers. So I learned I did learn Yiddish at home, although it was a different sort of very different than Yiddish today. Um, I grew up. My grandmother spoke seven languages. Uh, She had been brought here as a. 14-year-old to marry a 35-year-old to escape Europe. Mm. Um, Because of the Holocaust? uh, It was before the Holocaust, but it was when they started to see things going south. Uh, She was from Stachin, and she was brought over on a boat with her brothers, you know, as an immigrant. Um, And, you know, by today's standards, it may have actually been sex trafficked to get here, but whatever it is. And my my uncle was a, a Yiddish professor at... Uh, Brooklyn College or yeah, Brooklyn College. He was the preeminent scholar on Yiddish. My grandfather was a Yiddish writer. They had um, been they had escaped the Holocaust and ultimately believed that the you couldn't have a god and a and a Shoah at the same time. But the culture of Judaism was very important. So where I lit the candles, I went to an Orthodox Hebrew school after school. Um, you know, was sort of rebellious because it was sort of confusing. And then I, at, at 21, I got a scholarship to go to Israel, spent a year there. And, you know, one of the immediate things they do was there was a, a guy who who used to bring you 
He wanted you to feel welcome there. It was a, an indoctrination of sorts, but I was trying to find myself. So I, I became part of the, I went to Hebrew U, but I also became part of the ultra-Orthodox community. And I was taken from house to house on Friday nights, met lovely people, absolutely lovely people, felt comfortable. It was a, a beautiful comfort. But then, you know, as time went on, I came home one summer. My mother didn't know what to do with me. She was in tears. And there was a piece of me that said— Well, and she was in tears because you were moving more in an orthodox direction? I was just—I wouldn't eat in the house, and I wouldn't turn on the lights. And, you know, there was this issue of ripping toilet paper. It's all—you know, a lot of it is rituals. And she didn't know how to relate. She and I had been very close. And at some on some level, I said to myself, "Is this what it's all about? You know, do we have? In my view, does whatever I'm worshiping really want me to suddenly betray my parents and have them not really be able to relate to me?" So I backed up a bit, found my balance, met my husband, got married, uh, ended up getting my master's in Israel. Came back here for law school. Um, you know, he we speak Hebrew at home. Um, he, uh, his family, his father's family had been very religious as well at some point. And in Israel, you know, they teach religious subjects and secular subjects. So Israel, all public school students learn, you know, quite a lot about the religious subjects. It was at the time, it was a very small community of people who were exempt from secular learning because of a, a Bangorian's desire, as I understand it, to keep keep some level of faith within the community. And I don't think Bangor I, I really don't think the expectation was that it would become the sort of us versus them environment that it was that it's become there as well as here. So I've had a a movement of identities back and forth, but have a tremendous amount of respect for the religious community. Um I was welcomed in in it and and learned to understand a lot. There were a few things that turned me off to it, but um, you know, I was raised in a house where Jews got educated. I was either going to be a doctor or a lawyer. When I came home with a ninety nine, it was what happened to the point. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a great. You got a ninety nine, and and you know, I was a gymnast at the time. But Jewish, my you know, my parents were Jewish. Kids are not gymnasts. They're they're scholars, and so. For me, understand. I you know I understood. I heard Elie Wiesel speak in Yiddish, on on you know on his writings. I went to Yiddish Culture Congress meetings where I was brought in to learn that sort of side of things. And generally, most of these people were sort of old school socialists as well, who believed in you know all ships rise with the tide. So it was a very my my dad worked on Wall Street. There were a lot of confusing aspects to my upbringing, but eventually I found some sort of balance. And I suppose more recently, I've found that that the lexicon we use as as people who discuss these issues has to you're walking on sort of a razor's edge, because particularly now with how it, how anti-Semitism is has been on the rise, when you find Jews speaking up about Jewish problems, it becomes an issue, and then you find the very ultra Orthodox who don't believe in the existence of the state of Israel. And and you see them featured sometimes on these terrorist websites because hey, if the, if the ultra orthodox don't believe in the state of Israel and believe that it, we can't be, we're not welcomed in that state or we haven't earned that state without sort of its destruction to some extent, 
it, it's also used against us. Yeah, I remember one of those groups, uh, they bought advertising on this radio station about 16 years ago. I don't think we've ever gotten as much negative <laughs> mail as when we ran the commercial from one of these groups saying how, you know, real Jews essentially don't believe that uh, Israel should exist and that kind of a thing. Uh, people were very fired up about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the dinners that I went to, which was ultimately one of the turnoffs, it's, it's kind of a long story, but the, I'm going to make it short, was so I'm sitting down at this beautiful table. I won't say where it was because I don't know if they still own the house. Extraordinary amounts of money. He sits me down and he says, well, you know, you're not really Jewish. And I said, what do you mean? He said, your upbringing, you didn't, you, you weren't Shomer Shabbat. You didn't keep the Sabbath. And I said, yeah, so how am I less Jewish? He said, nope, you're not Shomer Shabbat. You're therefore not Jewish. So I said to him, well, you know, I'm guessing a lot more of my relatives died in Auschwitz and Birkenau and Treblinka and, and Bergen-Belsen than yours did. But we won't, we won't have this tit for tat. But, you know, as I see it, I am Jewish. And then... In in a sort of a weird situation, he says to me, let's have this discussion in another room. So he calls me into this other room and he says to me, you know, there's this there's this like 10-day period of what's called nida, which is ritual impurity. How about I meet you and we meet up and you'll never want for anything. And I said, so you're basically asking me if I'll be a whore. So he said to me, well, no, I wouldn't call it that. You'll be my companion during Nida. And I, I Meaning said, when his wife was yeah. experiencing that. Right? I said, wait a minute, I'm Jewish. He said, well, no, you're really not. That was like his belief. And it took me a lot. I mean, I spoke to rabbis. I spoke to a lot of people to understand what that perspective was. It was a very limited perspective. I don't know. I'm, and I'm not generalizing that this is to everybody. But it was one of these situations where I was like, huh, how do I feel about this? I was a 20-year-old college student, right? I was getting my master's there. And it, I found it really quite offensive and started to look into, you know, is this the traditional belief? And there is some sort of mixed, and I don't, don't misunderstand me, I don't attribute this to the entire community. And I'm, you know, I'm not even sure if any of the community agrees with it or doesn't agree with it. But it sort of made me think where I fit in the spectrum of, my religious belief versus my cultural, because Judaism tends to be both religious and cultural. Mm -hmm. It's a weird mix. And how I felt about, you know, my place in all of it. Um, so ultimately, you became very outspoken in your criticism of what was going on in certain yeshivas. And we're going to get into that in in just a minute. Just so folks understand some of the terms that we're going to use or that you're going to use, when we use the term uh, Orthodox Jewish, when we use the term Hasidic, when we use the term observant, what are each of those things? So Hasidic is a sect of of ultra-Orthodoxy. I have to use the word ultra because they're a little beyond just Orthodox. There's modern Orthodox, there's uh, Hasidic, there's ultra-Orthodox. And then, you know, I would use the word fundamentalist beyond that. Fundamentalist being more extreme than more extreme. Hasidic? Yeah, they're more extreme. Why did you make a face when I said Hasidic? Because, um, you know, that one, that term applies to a very specific group of ultra-Orthodox Jews. And, you know, if you call somebody who's ultra-Orthodox and you say it's Hasidic, some of them will just sort of frown at you and get offended the word that's used in, in Hebrew to sort of as the umbrella term is Haredi, which is a little more accurate. 
Um, I've seen people, I've had people say to me, look, ultra-Orthodox is a little offensive. But then I've seen it in writing in the same, you know, newspapers, the forward, mm-hmm. um, you know, a bunch of these newspapers, the the Times of Israel, the the um, Jewish, the Jewish Times, a few of them that have said, well, ultra-Orthodox is an offensive, offensive term because what does it mean to be ultra? You know, so... I think it's a level of observance, but Hasidic refers to a specific sect of... Got it. Okay, well, uh, we're going to continue with Julie Globus in just a minute and talk about this uh, explosive New York Times article and the response to it and how some elected officials are reacting to it, not only in New York, but outside of New York as well, and what it means for the taxpayers, what it means for parents, what it means for you. We have a lot of uh, listeners in the Orthodox Jewish community, so we're going to get into that, and we'll take your calls as well throughout the hour. 800-848-9222. That's 800 800- 848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The great Nancy Sinatra here on The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno here with Julie Globus, an attorney, the founder of the Lost Messiah blog, and uh, somebody who has been very vocal about some of the shortcomings of some of the education that goes on in certain yeshivas. Uh, Julie, I mentioned uh, the Lost Messiah blog. I know that became very controversial. What is or what was the Lost Messiah blog? What made you want to launch that? So it's still uh, the blog is still up. I don't put a lot. I don't. I don't have the time actually. I put a lot of time into it. Um, it was a blog that was intended to pick up on issues of um, sexual abuse within the religious community, fraud within the religious community, and issues of uh, lack of education, um, financing to, to yeshivas that were not appropriately educating their students, and uh, white collar fraud, which are some of like the you know the real sort of chafing issues for me, both as a Jew and as a Jew in Rockland, actually, um, and it it had quite a following. I just at some point, you know, things went awry, and I was uh, naive in a lot of respects, or as somebody once referred to me as an I- idealist that needed to grow out of my idealism, and. I've I've not been posting a lot to it, although one of the issues that I that I covered obsessively that was denied cert in the Supreme Court this past week, which was sort of vindication for me. But it, it you know, it it was a, a big blog and it was intended to take over or at least to fill a gap that failed Messiah, which had been running for years and years. 
Um, that was another blog, Failed yeah, Messiah? Yeah. And then you, you were sort of the sequel. You lost I Messiah. tried, yeah. Okay. Um, so we mentioned this New York Times article on yeshiva education. If people uh, didn't get to read it, I posted it at the time. I talked a little bit about it at the time. In a nutshell, what did it say about what goes on in a lot of yeshivas? So it culminated with a multi-year research project by the journalists who had um, gone in and examined the yeshivas, spoken to people who had graduated from the yeshivas, spoken to parents who had filed suits against the yeshivas for, for educational neglect, essentially. Um, all in New York or beyond New York as well? Um, it was all in New York, but it, it did speak there, – there was some beyond the borders because there are connected yeshivas in, in Lakewood – um, there are some yeshivas in Canada that have the same problem, but it really focused on New York. And it basically looked at the yeshivas in terms of like region scores and the comparisons of the yeshiva students versus the public school students and looked at the most failing yeshivas. I have to be honest, there are a lot of very successful yeshivas that are teaching their kids both yeshiva studies and some secular studies. Um, secular studies tend to go beyond certain ages for women, for young girls, and not for boys. Um, and then it was pretty scathing when it came to the ones where these kids were graduating and not being able to string sentences in English together. Uh, one of the people that I first spoke to about this, maybe about, uh, I guess, four or five years ago, was Naftuli Moster, the founder of a group called Yafed. And he talked about his own experience coming out of a yeshiva. And then he finds himself in college and uh, he, they, the professor used the word molecule, and he had never heard the word molecule before. And he looks around, and he doesn't understand why all the other students aren't as confused as he is. And they had all had a at least basic understanding of what a molecule was. Um, he is of the belief that um, these a lot of these yeshivas were totally negligent in teaching anything except. Torah studies, it sounds like you're of that same school of thought. I, I am of the same school of thought. There, look, it's not every yeshiva, so I don't, I don't want people to think I'm, this is a global every yeshiva and generalizing. But the, yesh, the yeshivas that were looked at, there were 28 of them, I believe, in that story. Um, they, they teach nothing of, as far as secular subjects. They don't teach science, they don't teach math, and they don't teach English. And then forget about the civic studies. Um, and in not knowing the word molecule, he, he went into a class where he didn't even know what he didn't know. And, and molecule is not mutually exclusive from the teachings, uh, you know, from the te- Torah teachings. Right, you could learn the Torah and what a molecule is. Uh, absolutely. There's nothing, you know, my favorite thing is to walk into the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Museum of Modern History and see Hasidic kids or Haredi kids walking around with their families. It's very unusual because then I know they're being exposed to this. But in many of these communities, the kids are not exposed to anything. So your analysis and your own research and your own observation of these uh, 28 schools, you found that the Times reporting, which found that they were doing these children a real disservice, it sounds like you you came to the same conclusion independently. Well, I mean, it goes back to 2014 when I first started looking at these issues. Um, there were a number of of journalists who who wrote about this in 2014-2015. JTA came out with a huge article and they too didn't get their vindication until the New York Times really picked up on this issue. And obviously the New York Times had to, had a sensitive topic to subject to 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 deal with, but you know, 
and and claims of anti-Semitism are just nonsense because the the the, the per- people who did the article were, were themselves Jewish, and yes, there is a, a systemic educational neglect amongst many of these yeshivas, and their children are being neglected. Of you know a fair and appropriate public education of FAPE, which is what's used in in New York lexicon. Right in New York State. It's actually in the state constitution that children, whether they're educated in public school or in private school or at home school, they are required to get a sound basic education, I guess, up until the eighth grade, right? Um, Yes. Well, it's actually federal law requires that they receive a fair and appropriate public education. This is the basis for due process complaints in the public school system. So these yeshivas are violating state law. They're violent. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I remember this was an issue in the de Blasio era. It resulted in the firing of his own uh, Department of Investigation commissioner. Why? I mean, clearly you mentioned going back to 2014 on this. It doesn't sound like it's difficult to see what was going on in some of these schools. Why was nothing done about this? Well, look, a lot of it is money. I mean, if I'm honest, the – the yeshivas themselves receive a fortune in public funding. They, About how much? Ballpark. Oh, I some of the yeshivas. I'm guessing it, it. You're looking at hundreds of thousands to the millions. They receive it through E-rate funding, which are are public grants and subsidies intended to increase libraries, increase at increase um, internet access, which these kids are denied altogether. There's public. There's free lunches to the kids. And my son in a public school doesn't get a free lunch. He pays up to between 5 and $10 a day I, I pay. I don't know what's subsidized from the federal government. But you're looking at – in I think in Rockland, there's 20 in, – in East Ramapo, there's 27,000 students that are yeshiva students that are in that public school gamut, which means they're bused to the public schools, to the yeshivas. And um, busing is between – Eight and fourteen percent of a school budget. So if you're looking at two hundred and thirty million dollars as a budget, and I think East Rampo is now higher, you're looking at at least twenty three million just from that source alone. That's funneled to to, to bus these kids to to yeshivas, and and then there's the school lunch program, and then there's the E rate and other financial funding, and then there are Pell grants that are offered to some of these kids who don't go to college. So it's there's money being funneled from all over the place. They're very good at applying for those 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 fundings where public schools lack that sort of savvy. You mentioned a lawsuit uh, brought by some parents to try and change this and try and challenge the fact that their children were being denied a, a sound basic education in violation of state and federal law. But it sounds like there are a lot of parents that were um, not vocal, not bringing a lawsuit, and almost complacent. Why do so many parents seem to put up with this? Well, so the way the community works is within any religious community. Let's just let's just say the uh, I'm just going to say the Satmar because it's the first one that comes to mind. There are rabbis that govern the both the community and they're sort of. They tell the, they tell the parents which yeshivas to send their kids to. They're say you know, I don't know two three whatever, and if the kids don't go to the yeshivas or the parents do something to defy the 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 mandates of the of the rabbinical elite or you know rabbinical governance, they're shunned from the community. These kid the kid you know the, the parents are outspoken. The kids suffer, they suffer the sins of the parents. 
So many of these parents, it's not that they're complacent. It's that they want the best for their kids within their community mm-hmm. because they want them to feel that sense of acceptance. And yet the only way to do that is to sort of, it's, it's a Faustian bargain almost, to sell their, you know, the the, the one thing in, in, in favor of the other and to do the weight and balances of what's more important, which is, you know, kind of di- disturbing in a lot of regards. Because, it, let, I mean, I'll give you a quick example I represented a family. They kept their kids at home because they didn't like, I mean, New York State public schools are not, they're not perfect either. This family didn't want their kids in public school. Somebody made a complaint. CPS got involved. The courts got involved. And this family was charged with educational neglect, even though the mother was teaching the kids subjects and submitting paperwork to the public school. So if she's being held to the standard of public education as a homeschooled child, then why is the counterpart in a religious school not held to the same standards? I mean, she spent a year back and forth in and out of court, paid a lot of money to fight a lot of this. And we're talking with Julie Globus. If you want to comment or if you have a question, uh, you can give us a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. In terms of the response from uh, some folks in the um, – Orthodox Jewish community to the New York Times article, there was swift and pretty vociferous condemnation of the New York Times reporting. Did you have a chance to look at any of the criticism in response to the Times article? What was the gist of it and what's your take on it? So there's a lot of criticism of it. I mean, part of it is because uh – the belief is that these kids in the school, they get critical reasoning. They get Socratic method. They get some level of gematria, which is the numerical equivalent of math as it applies to uh, a review of the Torah. It's an oversimplification. They get – it, it's not that they're not educated, but the feeling is once they come out of the, the yeshiva system, they've spent 12, 14, 16 hours at school, they're, they're coming out with – the, the uh, an education that can be applied to secular subjects once they're out if that's what they want to do even though they're going to be chained to a to a, a community that there's there's no way out of I, I'll give you something really quick I I read so one of the cases that I was so deeply involved in and just that just denied was denied cert I read one of the sentencing memos. And within the context of sentencing memo, there was one letter that just caught my attention of a guy who was referring to the person being sentenced. I'm not going to name names here as a mensch. And why is he a mensch? Because he knew the exact or close to the exact words were I had graduated from a typical yeshiva. I had no sense of I couldn't string an English sentence together. I didn't know math. I was unskilled. And he was a mensch because he hired me. He brought me into the fray. He taught me. The trading of the, you know, of the fund. He taught me how the funds work. He taught me a, the background. So he should be given this mensch kite understanding by the sentencing judge when the sentencing is done. And nobody's looking at the, like, outside the scope of this argument. You have a letter that was submitted to Judge Kogan on this one where he's defending, you know, he's giving this this character witness letter because he was, he left us. A typical yeshiva education, as he puts it, where everybody knows, according to him, that there's that the, he wasn't going to come out with the appropriate level of education necessary to find a job. And here was a guy who saved him. No, nobody's looking at those letters. I just happened to stumble upon it. And that's, you know, that's like the, you know, what's referred to as the dying declaration mm-hmm. sort of 
you, you couldn't be more honest than that. It's an affidavit. So you have a situation where, based on not only the New York Times reporting, but a lot of other observations, that um, some Hasidic Jewish schools in the state of New York have denied at least 50,000 students a sound basic education and at the same time gotten more than a billion dollars in government funds over the last four years. Uh, The mayor of the city of New York, Eric Adams, was asked about this. He said, quote, I'm not concerned about the findings of the article. Um, Do you think that he should be? Well, I think he should be. I mean, look, you're talking about a lot of money. I think he... He took the out because he doesn't want to get into a politically charged argument. Um, why is educating children and wanting the best education for children in your city, why is that a politically charged argument? Well, because there's money. There's money. There are donations. And a lot of the donations coming from yeshivas. And he had a lot of support when oh, he ran from oh, yeah. the Orthodox Jewish community, right? Oh, absolutely. And, of course, because of these sort of new super PAC things, they don't have to actually register who's, mm-hmm. who's donating. But you can find – dozens of donations from yeshivas that, by the way, also received PPP loans, I mean, on top of everything else. And he's, I don't know that he's not, ultimately, I don't know that that he shouldn't be concerned because 10 years, a generation from now, you're going to have, you're going to have more people on, on subsidized living because they can't themselves support themselves, whether we like it or not. Well, have we seen that in, um, in communities that have a uh, large Hasidic population, where this goes on in a lot of in a lot of yeshivas uh, communities, uh, like some of what you've talked about in Rockland, uh, Curious Joel, other places in Orange County, do these folks have? Uh, do these communities have a lot of need for public welfare and and uh, and subsidies because folks are uneducated and unable to get a job? Well, Kiras Joel has been listed many years in a row as one of the poorest cities in the country. Um, New Square comes to a close second or third. Um, whether it's because whether I can make that direct correlation about education and 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 uh, welfare, I would say yes, I can. There's, I mean, well, if you come out of school without any marketable skills, it's work. tough to get a job. Absolutely. So, and Kiras Joel has been written about for years, now I think referred to as Palm Tree, New York, but it's been referred to for years and years and years as one of the most impoverished um, cities or municipalities or whatever incorporated entities in the country. So, yes, I believe it's going to be a problem, and I believe it's going to be a huge problem in New York. The New York State Board of Regents uh, approved a new set of standards for private schools including yeshivas, uh, what did they do? What they did ostensibly was they defined what it is to be substantially equivalent or substantially similar. And they've said in order to accept funding, you need to provide a substantially similar, substantial equivalency test education for the kids, which means meeting certain standards. And by the way, those standards are not ridiculous. Um, And those standards don't are not mutually exclusive from teaching whatever you're teaching in your schools. And it's been done for all religious schools. I I mean, they had to. And basically it says we're going to start looking into your schools and making sure that your kids are coming out with a substantially similar or substantially equivalent education. And if the yeshivas are right, adding this um, aspect to their education will then surpass New York State education and might force New York State to better educate their kids. 
So, so it sounds like the Board of Regents did the right thing. Oh, I believe so. Uh, 800-848-9222. It is interesting, though, that even though the Board of Regents moved forward with this in the aftermath of the New York Times article, the governor, the governor Kathy Hochul, who's, of course, up for election this year, she did whatever she could to distance herself from the move by the Board of Regents. She was quoted as saying, this is out of the purview of the governor. There's a regulatory process in place, but the governor's office has nothing to do with this. This is an independent entity. For something that's uh, so positive, she seemed to uh, distance herself from this. Now, you might think maybe that's an opportunity for her Republican opponent, Congressman Lee Zeldin, to uh, highlight an issue where he could talk about why he's the education candidate. And yet here was Congressman Zeldin on September 13th talking about the vote uh, by the Board of Regents. This morning, the Board of Regents voted unanimously on these new substantial equivalency regs targeting yeshivas and other non-public education. Inside of these yeshivas, we have young kids who are receiving an education that is promoting values, values of service, of family. Boys and girls living law-abiding lives. And it's important that they get this great leadership from an early age. We had an opportunity here for so many in state government to be able to speak up and defend everything that's great about a yeshiva education. But unfortunately, too many people were silent. Governor Hochul was one of them. It's important when you're the governor of the state of New York to speak up for what is right. And that New York Times story that came out this past Sunday was a hit piece. So you have uh, Eric Adams, a Democrat, former Republican, who says he's not concerned about the article. You have Kathy Hochul that says, I have nothing to do with the Board of Regents um, increasing or at least putting in some sort of educational standards. And you have Lee Zeldin going even further, saying that the reporting from The New York Times was not only inaccurate, but it was a hit piece and Governor Hochul ought to be more vocal Does the fact that uh, three of the most prominent politicians in the state, uh, all from different parts of the state, uh, different political parties, does the fact that all three of them are not embracing the desire to educate children in these schools indicate that they're afraid of the political clout among some in the Haredi community? So uh, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Let me start with one point. The answer to your question is yes. They're too well-funded. The, the Haredi community, they are not stupid. They are very savvy. They fund everybody. So they'll give more funding now, and, and the rabbis will say support Zeldin because he's not going to put any – he's going to try and undo the restrictions on, on the education. He's already said he's going to take a hands-on approach. There's another statement somewhere that he said it. He's been arguing since uh, very early on before that statement that – he, he wasn't going to touch the yeshiva education. Now he's come out affirmatively and said this is all wrong. But the, 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 the thing that bothers me the most is he said, oh, these yeshiva kids, they're getting morals and family values and they're being taught to, to love one another. Basically, he's saying every other student in the state of New York is not being taught to love mm. one another, is not being given a moral education, is not being this – is not being governed by a standard of morality. So not only did he speak out in favor of these yeshivas, but he also insulted everybody wow. else, which which I find appalling, utterly appalling, because what he has said is 
oh, we're going to allow the New York State schools to fail their schools by not teaching morality. And we're going to allow the yeshiva schools to, to fail their kids by not teaching secular subjects because morality is enough. And, and it sounds like this was a pretty blatant act of political pandering. Absolutely. Yeah. We're 800-848-9222. We're going to continue w- with your calls. I've been uh, hogging Julie's wisdom for the last uh, 40 minutes or so. We're going to let you ask questions. And if you disagree, that's great. Just disagree politely. No uh-huh. need to call anybody Hitler. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Is it getting better? Or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to play. You say, one love, one life, one need. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. That's uh, Bono and Mary J. Blige. We're joined in studio uh, by Julie Globus. She is an attorney. And the publisher of the Lost Messiah blog. You can find that just by Googling Lost Messiah. We've been talking about what's going on in terms of the failure of a lot of yeshivas to educate their students. The politicians on both sides of the aisle that seem very eager to pander, uh, to um, to not do anything about this. And the taxpayers that foot the bill for a lot of this to the tune of about a billion dollars over the last four years. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Ann in Brooklyn. Hello, Ann. Hi, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Okay, I disagree very strongly regarding that the Hasidic students are not prepared to support themselves. I am what you, David, call ultra-Orthodox. I have a lot of Hasidic relatives the Hasidic, um, I think, in general, earn, I think, maybe even above average salaries, like 100000 or more. However, because they have very large families, seven, eight children, they might be classified as poor, but they are still earning high incomes. It's just the large family size that makes them classified as poor. So they're not, unpre- you know, ill-prepared to earn a living. They're actually earning, you know, nice, whatever, middle-class incomes. It's just the large family sizes that make them appear. But they are, you know, you know, they're working and they're earning nice salaries. What about that, Julie? You know, I have uh, one child, and I know that uh, I'm a lot closer to poverty than I was 10 months ago. Uh, does uh, Anne have a point that maybe it's about having seven, eight children, not about a lack of education? Okay, so the, there's two parts to that question, and Anne, I appreciate the question. Um, but it's not every yeshiva. It's not every Hasidic person. And I appreciate the, the salaries. I appreciate all of it. The question is, are they limited in the jobs that they can find? Did they have to do extra work to come out of school and learn 
the skills because they didn't have the appropriate English and math. And I, you know, maybe not, maybe they went to yeshiva that taught those skills. And, you know, this is not, I, I tried to make the point along the way that this is not a broad generalization of every yeshiva. So, you know, I can appreciate what you're saying, but I, I don't think the generalization that it works for everyone works either. 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, hello. Um, I'm going to ask a very simple question, and I hope I'm not oversimplifying it. But it seems to me that if I were a member of the Haredi community, that it would be to my advantage to make sure that my children were fully educated so they could go out into society and make something of themselves. Why are certain members, and let's be specific, certain members, not all, seem um, to want to keep this system going where children are not receiving an education and are not able to go out into the world? Because unlike your previous caller, we both know that there are communities in upstate New York where almost none of the men work. They're all on welfare and food stamps, and they all vote, which is why politicians are pandering. Thank you. Um, David, thanks for the question. Um, so there are a couple of reasons for not wanting to educate the children. I do find myself perplexed by this because – one of the major speakers on this is a, a, one of the heads of Aguda to Israel, and he himself is highly educated. He's prominent. He's respectful. He's, he, I, we've had some back and forth, sort of a love-hate relationship, but he's super educated. So why they would not want to educate their children, I think, is because education is power. And the more you introduce the children to what might otherwise be secular subjects, the more you – potentially leave them to question the a level of indoctrination for lack of a better word that they've been given and it's unfortunate because on the one hand i've seen articles that say no we are giving them secular education we are meeting those expectations and yet there's still lawsuits fighting these rules and if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing then what difference do the rules make and for the ones that have argued you know viciously to have these 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 mandates overturned to ask yourself why they don't want their kids educated. It's because it's a control. You, you keep them locked into a community where they have no escape really, unless they can figure out an escape route for themselves or something that is referred to as OTD off the derech, which means off the path. You're some of this there. They fear education is going to get them there. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yeah, hi, Frankie. How you doing? Good. Yeah, my question is, yeah, a lot of these um, Hasidic go for rabbinical college. I can understand. So let's say compared to the Catholic Church, a lot of priests, they only teach them Catholicism on their, on their, on their way. There's a lot of these boys are going there to, to become rabbis. Yeah, sure, you need an you English education. And I think that she's right. They should put in the schools at least two hours a day or minimum. To teach these kids about you know the English basic English and give them that direction, but um, a lot of these kids are growing up to be like ra- rabbis and rabbinical college going out there. Well, they can't all be rabbis, right? If there's a class of twenty yeah. or thirty, uh, I don't think they can all grow up to be a rabbi, right, Julie? Yeah, not everyone. Not you know the Torah writes. Not everyone's going to be a rabbi. You need the business world. You need the doctors, the lawyers, and the rabbis. So the problem is they're 
they're cutting everyone out to be look to be the same. So they got to basically like work around that. You know, not every be um, um, going. You know, not with the big beard and a big hat, and then you have you have kids who want to. They want they're dying to go out there and learn, and have an education. You know, become going to college and everything else. Simon, let me let uh, Julie respond. Before I, I we so appreciate your comment because I, I agree with you. There, uh, you know, I have no lack of respect for the, the, the Torah learning. It is tough learning. But at the same time, the Torah says, I mean, the, some of the great rabbis say we have to be self-sufficient. The law of the land is the law, almost like when in Rome do as the Romans do. And you have to create a system of self-sufficiency. And yes, there is a there's a need for rabbis. There is a need for a level of God fearing morality, whether it comes from the church community or the the Jewish community or you know the Presbyterian community. I think it sets a, mora- a morality factor in motion. But a, I, I completely agree with you. There there has to be at least a few hours where you say, okay, we're going to teach the kids enough to survive in the in the world in the real world. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Rivki is in Brooklyn. Hello, Rivki. Hi, hi, Frank. Hi. You know, I listen to you every night, but I wish you could have found a more educated uh, guest in this area. She is totally off. I happen to have been a teacher for many years. I actually worked for the Board of Education and worked in the yeshivas teaching reading. I mainly worked in the girls' schools, but I did have access to the boys' schools to help some boys who needed special help with learning to read. Now, I have to tell you that in the girls' schools, right through high school, they are taught, and even in Satma, I happen to have taught writing in Satma in Weersburg. They are taught reading, writing, math, science, history. The girls are taught everything. And the kind of writing that I did with them was so sophisticated, I don't think any student in the public school could handle it. They had to dissect paragraphs and give me a writing about it, and it was pretty sophisticated, that uh, article they had to work with. Now, as far as the boys' yeshivas go, they teach the basics in all the yeshivas through eighth grade. After that, all your guests are just telling a bunch of lies. The man that said that they're all on 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 the Medicaid or whatever, it's a lie. All right, and I want you to know, to be a rabbi, you have to be fluent in English and English education, too. Don't you think so? I, I would think so. Don't uh, you think so? I would think I, so. Uh, Julie, respond to what Rivki said there. Well, so I've attended... I've attended synagogue services to learn a little bit more about the rabbis. Most of them speak in in Yiddish or Hebrew, depending upon what they're reading. And then you speak to them in English, and some of them have a hard time stringing sentences together. Um, as far as the girls' schools, I'm not going to argue with you. the 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 New York the New York Times article focused mainly on the boys, not on the girls, because it it is no, you know widely known that girls are taught beyond uh, beyond uh, the grammar school. Um, education. So there I wouldn't argue with you. But when you say that you went through paragraphs, are you talking, you know, life is but a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more? Or are you talking about translations of 
of religious texts because there's a difference between Shakespeare and religious texts. I'm, you know, what was it you were teaching, really? Julie, we're going to have to end it there. It, the hour always flies by whenever you're in studio. Uh, let's do this again soon. Uh, Julie Globus, you could check out the Lost Messiah blog. Until next hour, keep asking questions.